Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, November 11th, 2013. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are in Chapter 11, A Vision for You, on page 158, the last paragraph beginning with, So You See. Today's readers are as follows. Reading the OA 12 Steps is Marietta. Reading the OA 12 Traditions is Rose. And reading the literature are Sally, Rick, Sylvia, and Judy B. The reference number for Sunday, November 10th meeting is 5435. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. OA's fifth tradition states, Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Marietta to read the OA 12 steps. Hi, this is Marietta from Virginia. And the 12 steps. One, we admit we were powerless over compulsive overeating, then our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Marietta. I will now ask Rose to read the OA 12 Traditions. The Twelve Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, 
For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, or prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Pass. Thank you, Rose. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book in Chapter 11, A Vision for You, on page 158, the last paragraph beginning with So You See. I will ask Sally to begin by reading both this paragraph and the following one. Good morning, Vision for You. Good morning, Rebecca. It's Sally in South Jersey, recovered compulsive overeater. So you see, there were three alcoholics in that town who now felt they had to give to others what they had found or be sunk. After several failures to find others, a fourth turned up. He came through an acquaintance who had heard the good news. He proved to be a devil-may-care fellow 
whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. They were deeply religious people, much shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. He suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him. He consented, however, to go to the hospital, where he occupied the very room recently vacated by the lawyer. He had three visitors. After a bit, he said, The way you fellows put this spiritual stuff makes sense. I'm ready to do business. I guess the old folks were right after all. So one more was added to their fellowship. So as we begin the story, we see that now there's three. And the three are, of course, Dr. Bob, Bill W., and this Alcoholics Anonymous uh, fellow number three, uh, Bill Dodson. And um, this, this very precious story. So you see there were three alcoholics in that town who now felt they had to give to others what they had found or be sunk. And those are very key words for me, or be sunk. We learn on X, uh, XVII at the top of the page, it also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. And so they know that it's vital to their permanent recovery where they're going to be sunk, that they give this away, what they have found. And after several failures, they go on to find a fourth gentleman. He came through an acquaintance who had heard the good news. He proved to be a devil-may-care fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. It wasn't enough that he needed to stop drinking. They weren't sure that he wanted to. Apparently, these parents recognized that their son needed to want it, not just need it. And they were deeply religious people, much shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. And he, it goes on to say he suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him. And you know, when I think about these parents, I'm reminded of my own parents. My dad, a medical doctor, a lung specialist, didn't have any idea of the danger that I was in, the danger that I myself didn't know that I was in until I was 22 years years after binging in front of my parents and, and being bulimic in front of my parents, did they have any idea of the danger that I was in? I don't think they did. I honestly don't think that my dad to this day really recognizes or has any idea of the danger that I was in in the food. Um, I think that's the saddest part about having an eating disorder like, like this, is that so many people see us, they see us on the holidays binging. They see us and it's just... It's just not even, for, for most people, they don't recognize that it is, something is terribly wrong. And here again, as we've talked about in these last few days, we have to know. Nobody else has to know the danger that we're in. I have to know the danger that I'm in. When I talk with other people who call me, I try to, to help them to recognize the, the, how important it is that we are once and for all addressing this physical allergy of our body and the mental disorder that we're dealing with, the, the blind spot that they talk about on page 42 and page 24 and other places. And what really blows me away is that so many people that call me don't recognize the danger that they're in still. Um, and so that seems to be like my first job when I get on the phone with a newcomer who's just putting the food down is to help them to see for themselves the danger that they're in. 
So when I see these parents who were shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church, and they saw that he suffered horribly, but it wasn't until he saw, it wasn't until he was ready, it goes on to say, that he was put in the same room, which kind of made me giggle, that he's put in the same room vacated by the lawyer. Sort of a setup. They put him in this quiet place all by himself so they could come, the three of, the, the three of them, the three visitors. And the way you fellows put this spiritual stuff makes sense. I'm ready. So he's ready to do business, and apparently he is, because it goes on to say, so one more was added to the fellowship. So with that, I pass. Thank you, Sally. Who else? Who would like to share on what Sally read? This is Kim. Hi, Kim. Go right ahead. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. I just want to pull out two sentences. The first one is, so you see there are three alcoholics in this town who now felt they had to give others what they found or be sunk. You know, we're told at the very beginning of the book, the absolute beginning of the book on page 20, where it says, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends upon our constant thought of others and how we may meet their needs. So as wonderful as this program is, and as much as they wanted to share it because they were happy about it, Bill and Bob understood, absolutely understood that if they wanted to keep this, they needed to carry this message. This was not an option for them. They needed to carry this message. And this whole chapter, this vision for you, is about creating that fellowship you crave. And why do we crave that fellowship? Because I understand that in and of myself, I am going to drink again. I will eat again in and of myself. And it is only through keeping myself unblocked from God and it's only in carrying this message that I am going to have access to that defense against that first bite. And that defense against that first bite isn't of me, it's of God. So often when I, I, my experience now being recovered for three years and having 17 years in a way where I picked up, my personal experience and my observation is people who work through the steps and go back to the food is because they treat 10 and 11 as triage. They think that they only have to do 10 and 11 when things are getting bad. That old joke about being a teabag Christian, only praying when you're in hot water. 10 and 11 isn't a part of their daily life. It's just what they do when things aren't going their way. And the other one is they don't carry this message. As soon as I see someone who starts to not sponsor as much, who sponsors leave them, and then they say, well, yeah, I don't have time to pick up another one, they start to retreat from that, I know they're in trouble. Because how do I work one, two, and three every day? I teach one, two, and three every day. By teaching someone powerlessness, I am reaffirming my powerlessness. By teaching someone they need a higher power, I am reaffirming that I need a higher power. By teaching someone about the decision to turn their life and will over to God, I am reaffirming my decision. And by working steps 10 every day, I'm working 4 through 9. It is only by transmitting what I have that I'm going to be able to keep what I got. And that last sentence I want to bring out is I'm ready to do business. 
that is where we have to get. Are we ready to do business or are we looking for a temporary respite? Are we ready to submit to this program or are we just looking for a way to get off 30 pounds because we have a wedding to go to in four or five months? Are we ready to fully surrender or we just want our doctor off our back about having to take insulin now? Or we want our kids off our backs because we're not, we're not even available to them. So this is essential. This is absolutely essential for me as a recovered person to know that my life depends on my constant thought of others. And it's essential if you're new on this line that you have to be ready to do business. And that's the only thing that will allow you to work this program with the tenacity you need to if you want to recover. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Did anyone else want to share on these two paragraphs? This is Paula. May I share? Go right ahead, Paula. This is Paula, Recovered Compulsible Reader. And thank you. I want to look at a couple of lines also. So you see. Oh, that's a good thing to look at. So you see. There were three alcoholics in that town who now felt that they had to give to others what they had found or be sunk. They had found something. What did they find? They found their very life. But what does it say next? And I'm reading again. After several failures to find others, the four turned up. They didn't give up. They didn't give up. In their own power, they would have given up. Oh, one failure, two failure. I hate it. I'm failing all over the place. Well, I might as well just stop. On my own power, I would. But you see, they weren't on their own power anymore. They knew a higher power. I want to just drop it down here, and then they continued on. And look what happens here. He proved to be a devil-may-care, so they did find some young fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. Now, why? Why couldn't they make it out? You'd think they'd know one way or the other. He didn't even know. I didn't even know whether I wanted to stop drinking or not. Because I would say it. I would say it. But I wouldn't live it. My intentions were always honorable. But in dishonor, I came. I wanted to end with... It talks about he suffered horribly. What about the parents? You know, I'm just going to go to the doctor's opinion. But you can join me here. If any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us for a while on the firing line. These guys were on the firing line. They were the ones that were being fired at. See the tragedies. The despairing wives, the little children. It affects no one. It affects everyone. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. The movement we're talking about now. Be clear on the word. Movement. It moved, honey. We feel that after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more of the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement again now growing among them. And here we see the beginning of the movement and the growth. Thank you for allowing me to share. With that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Anyone else? Sarah. Kaya. Sarah and then Kaya. Sarah, 
we're waiting for you first. Sarah? Can you hear me? Is this Sarah speaking? Yes, it is. Now we can. Okay. Humbly, I say I must have muted myself again. <laughs> um, I want I'm, I'm a grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater. Um, I wanted to just bring to the forefront the idea of gratitude. Um, what I hear uh, when we talk about this paragraph is that not only do we do this for our sobriety or abstinence, but we also do it for the idea that we need to maintain gratitude for what we have. And when we see people that are still suffering, we have to feel grateful for what we have. It makes us grateful. And as they recover, then we become more grateful because now we have somebody that's walking on the way with us. Um, You know, I don't think it has to do with being religious. I think, you know, a spiritual program is what we have, and many people are religious, but they really haven't chosen to, at this point in their lives, say, uh, do basically the the third step, which I think is a huge part of our program, turning our will and our life over the care of God. Um, We kind of hold on to that, because I think it's all about trust. It's about trusting that that higher power will be there for us. And for some of us, that trust means that things will go the way we want them to. And that, I don't think, is the reality of what life is. Sometimes there's a much bigger picture. And a lot of times the bigger picture is, um, you know, let's say, you know, I, I don't think God punishes, but I think that sometimes people are, are the reason for why we want to remain sober because we see their pain. We don't want to go back to that. Not that we want to see anybody suffer, but I think there is a reason for everything. And and I don't know those reasons, but I think that that the trust issue is huge. Uh, I think that it is imperative, as, as was stated before, that we work with other people. But I also think it's imperative that we get out of ourselves and help others whether they be in, a, in recovery or outside of it, in our daily life, that we choose to do things that is, that, that is kind, that we are, are willing to get outside of ourselves and, um, and be there for other people uh, and sacrifice through that. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that, uh, that they kept going. Uh, there wasn't the support, obviously, that there is today. And... Um, you know, I'm sure they went through many bumps in the road, not only in their sobriety, but in their own lives, uh, difficulties, illnesses, and they maintain their sobriety through it. And I think for me, it's really, a, it, at this point, it's about emotional sobriety, how I behave in my family, how I behave in my, um, at, at my work, um, and how I feel about myself. Because as was stated, step 10 and 11, um, you know, if I don't continue to take personal inventory, I'm making lots more records, so I'm going to be doing another fourth step in the very near future. And if I continue to take personal inventory, I won't. I'm grateful we're reading where we are, and I'm grateful for all the people that came before us. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Haya? 
Hi, hi, Rebecca. This is Claire, grateful, recovered, compulsive eater in Nick in Dallas, Texas. And welcome to all the new people. We're in Chapter 11, so we've done a lot of work before we got here. But it's such a beautiful chapter, um, kind of giving the, a vision, a vision for you. This is what is in store. Um, particular to these paragraphs that were just read, you know, it says here, um, <clears throat> he suffered horribly from his sprees, but seemed as if nothing could be done for him. Um, and then just shortly after, he had three visitors. After a bit, he said, the way you fellows put this spiritual stuff makes sense. I'm ready to do business. Um, so what do we know happened there is, you know, when he came in, he really, you know, he wasn't sure that he was ready to stop. His parents weren't sure that he was ready to stop. But what, what the three alcoholics were taught did was they told of their own story, their own problem, how they were in the quicksand. They described their problem and what happened to them, not speaking, not, not uh, lecturing at um, this fourth alcoholic, but instead sharing their own demise and what alcoholism did to them so that he could identify. And then only then did they bring up the solution. So first they talked about the problem and the problem and the problem and the problem. And that's what, you know, I'm so grateful that when I was taken through the book, I was taken through from the very, very beginning of the book. And um, so we, I, we went through the doctor's opinion so I could really understand the problem and then it was given examples of that where it's given through Bill's story. And then starting, so I understood the physical allergy and the mental obsession. And then through finding out what the solution is. By the way, it says there is a solution. <laughs> there is a singular, a solution. Um, and it's in this book. And that's what they were offering um, this man. And... Um, and one more was added to the fellowship, another recovered alcoholic. And that's how we pass this thing on, um, one by one, person by person, lots and lots and lots of failures along the way. It says after several failures to find other, others, a fourth turned up, right? A fourth person who would recover turned up. They went through a lot of people who they tried to share, and they did the same exact thing. Um, shared their own their own problem, their own story to try to paint a picture so that the alcoholic would identify, but not everybody um, is is willing you know not everybody consents um, you know to i 'm ready to do business you know not everybody is really ready to do business and um, and that 's not a moral issue it 's just where people are on their path and i 've learned you know as both as a uh, us, you know, a, a, a person being taken through the steps and now very, very grateful to be a person who has been privileged to take others through the steps that people are ready when they're ready. And that's not about me. My job is to offer and um, be there when uh, to help, help be a lighthouse. Um, but I can't row the boat for the person. I can only point, um, point to the you know, point the directions out and ride alongside them um, in my own boat, which him, you know, beautifully described as, you know, continuing to go through steps one, two, and three each day by, by teaching it, teaching meaning a very 
you know, giving over what we've got um, and then continuing to take my own personal inventory through step 10, which is step four through nine. And boy, is that an important thing. Wow, is step 10 critical for me. And then continuing to develop this relationship with God, which I gained access to through steps four through nine. I have access to the power now. I really do. Not just belief in, but access. And continuing to improve that access. And then, of course, carrying the message to others, not just alcoholics and compulsive eaters in our case, but to others by practicing the principles of my affairs. That's how I stay current in my own recovery is by giving it away. And I'm just so grateful. And if you're new, I hope you stay. Thank you. Thank you. Eileen. Hi, Eileen. Hi. Thanks for letting me share. This is Eileen, a food addict from Bedford, Mass. Um, I was just reading these two paragraphs over again. And to me, it talked all about the spiritual side of the program and getting it. And, um, you know, I, I may have mentioned here before that it took me a long time to get the willingness to surrender the sugar and flour 18 years. And I've experienced a lot of consequences because of this disease. Um, it says here, he proved to be a devil-may-care young fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. That was me. I thought that I wanted to quit. I, it wasn't necessarily the incredible weight that brought me in. It was a mental obsession and the insanity with thinking about eating all the time. And that continued. Um, uh, it didn't matter if I came from a deeply religious background. I pushed religion aside a long time before I came into OA. But I've redeveloped a relationship with God and with my fellows in this program. And um, I know um, that I've been added to the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous to a 12-step program because uh, people call me, because I share at meetings, I qualify at meetings. I'm, I'm reputable now. Um, I'm coming up to four years abstinent again after a relapse of a month. You know, um, I, I cannot say enough about this fellowship. It's wonderful, and I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Eileen. This Leah, is Leah. Heard, you know, I think I heard it, the other Leah. Let me just check on that. It's Leah, Leah squared. Yes, okay, you did. So, so Leah M first. <laughs> And then oh, I don't okay. know the initial of the other Leah, but Leah <laughs> M. Okay. Thank you so very much, Rebecca. Darling, this is darling Leah. Is, is your last name, does that begin with an M? My last initial is S, okay. and I'm from Le Brooklyn, New York. Leah M is going to go next, and then Leah S. Okay. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Leah S. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I just wanted to speak uh, on this statement here. He suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him, which reminded me of that uh, 
you know, a couple of lines in the um, forward to the first edition where it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So, you know, just focusing on, um, you know, that it seems hopeless. Um, certainly, you know, I get that. I, you know, uh, I had to be beaten into a state of reasonableness by this disease. My book teaches me that most of us, most alcoholics, most compulsive overeaters have to be pretty badly mangled before they commence to uh, solve their problems. But the point is that it just seems hopeless. You know, there is a program of recovery if we are willing to do business, which is implement these steps that allow us to be transformed. I know when I uh, crawled my way into a lock facility in 1987 because the madness of this illness was so severe that my soul was getting sucked right out of me. I was a shattered young woman. I had absolutely no uh, vision of what could transpire as a result of this program of recovery. You know, this this isn't about just stopping. I've stopped thousands and thousands of times. How do I not start again? How do I get comfortable uh, sober living on this planet? Uh, the program of recovery uh, allows me to be rebuilt the way God intended me to be. Um, you know... <laughs> And that's exactly what happened for this uh, young man as well. It said previously, you know, his they were shocked. His parents were shocked uh, by by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. Okay, you know, I too had to get beaten into a state of reasonableness. I too had to be, um, you know, shattered by this illness until I was willing to surrender. You know, I experienced God when my resistance stopped. And that was true for this guy also. I was the creator of my own pain. Nobody was doing this to me. Nobody was shoving that 9 by 13 tin of brownies down my throat, for goodness sakes. I was the one that was self-destructing under the guise of uh, seeking ease and comfort with my own hand and fist. But when you're beaten enough, and when you're cornered enough, and when you've tried to throw everything against the disease to conquer that obsession of the mind, and you're still falling flat out on your face time and time and time again, then maybe we get willing to do business. And that business is to implement these steps. That business is to work this program as if my life depended on it, because it did. This was no, uh, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips. This is life or death, heaven or hell, and the choice was always mine to make, and that's still my choice every day. You know, there's only column one or column two. 
There's no uh, other variety here for someone like me, a real compulsive overeater like me. And that was true for this gentleman, it's true for me, and it's true for you if you're a real compulsive overeater. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Leah S., thank you for waiting. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, everyone. I'm a grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater. My name is Leah S., from Brooklyn, New York. I, I, I too want to comment um, on um, what Kim had said, being ready. I just want to say um, something that is really on my mind, being ready. Being ready for me means taking responsibility, growing up, and becoming mature. And doing now, it's, everything is up to me. It is up to me what I do and what I am going to do. And um, I just wanted to compare it to the way I was taught to make a bed when I was a little girl. Um, I was told exactly how to make it, and then all of a sudden the bed looked so nice. And there was this feeling in me of, oh, my goodness, the room looks so pretty with this pretty bedspread on and I know how to make it and that's exactly the way I see what I'm doing in this program I am ready to do whatever my sponsor tells me I am ready to do what the big book tells me I am ready if I have a problem to look into that book big book as reference I am ready because I know that I'm going to get these answers over there and it's going to help me. It's going to guide me. I'm going to, I'm ready to use my tools. I'm ready to make the phone calls. I'm ready to come into these meetings every single morning. And with that, I'll pass. And thank you. Thank you, Leah S. I think we should move on. Rick, would you take the next paragraph? Good morning. My name is Rick. I'm a compulsive overeater. All this time, a friend of the hotel lobby incident remained in that town. He was there three months. He now returned home, leaving behind his first acquaintance, the lawyer and the devil-may-care chap. These men had found something brand new in life, though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they remained sober. That motive became secondary. It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. They shared their homes, their slender resources, and gladly devoted their spare hours to fellow sufferers. They were willing, by day or night, to place a new man in the hospital and visit him afterwards. They grew in numbers. They experienced a few distressing failures. But in those cases, they made an effort to bring the man's family into a spiritual way of living, thus relieving much worrying suffering. I am Rick. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. What the uh, what Bill is doing here is kind of recapping the story. He's going to tell more about it in the next few paragraphs about what happened in Akron in those early days. So he starts out with the friend of the hotel lobby incident, who is Bill, uh, was three months leaving behind his first acquaintance, that's Dr. Bob, the lawyer, 
Bill Dotson and the Devil May Care chap. And uh, that was a guy named Ernie G. Uh, we don't hear much more about Ernie G. He's not in the stories. Come to find out, Ernie G. did not stay sober. But he was sober for that first year when, when Bob and Bill were starting up in Akron. And it's interesting that um, later on in the paragraph, it says, um, if they would remain sober, that motive became secondary. Their main purpose, it says, the next line, what it was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. So they found that helping others was more important than their own sobriety. By helping others, they were able to maintain their sobriety. If keeping sober was their prime prime focus, they probably wouldn't have been able to help as many people. They wouldn't have been able to to get rid of that selfish motive. Uh, in fact, you know, selfishness could be staying sober. So I think that's very interesting what they did. They shared their homes, their resources, and devoted their spare hours to fellow sufferers. Um, and then even up in the last paragraph, when they had failures, they made an effort to bring the man's family into a spiritual way of living, thus relieving much worrying suffering. So those early days in Akron, you know, the fellowship was, was, was starting up. The 12 steps had just been written by Bill. They weren't really using 12 steps. They were using five or six principles. And it was a movement. It was an altruistic movement. They were helping other people. They had not... They had not formulated, um, you know, the directions. They had not really practiced the directions as we have them written out. They were kind of living them. And what it was, it was a, was a way to help each other and even, as you see, to help the families. And that's how this fellowship began to grow in Akron. It was, it was not so much designed to just stay sober. It was, a design, it was designed to help fellow men, and by doing that, they were able to stay sober, and they were able to sober up other people. So this book is not a book about how to stay sober. This book is about how to help each other, and this book is about how to get in touch with God. So I think, you know, sometimes we, we get focused on the eating, we get focused on the drinking, but the main purpose of this book is to get in touch with a power greater than ourselves. And when we get in touch with that power, we can help others. And by helping others and getting in touch with God, we can stay sober. So I'll pass with that. Thank you, Rick. Who would like to share on this paragraph? Sylvia? Melanie? Hi, this is Kathy in Boston. Sylvia, Melanie, and then Kathy. Sylvia, you go first. Thank you. This is Sylvia, recovered compulsive overeater in upstate New York, and so glad to be on the line with all of you this morning. And the one sentence I wanted to look at, and uh, just to piggyback on what Rick had said, though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober, that motive became secondary. 
It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. And I just remember early on when uh, I got abstinent and I was working the steps. And, it, you know, it, it's fragile at first, that, that recovery. Um, and I know that I was encouraged uh, to work with others. And how we do that often on, uh, on uh, Vision for You is that I have my sponsees called newcomers because they're all so close together still in their recovery and uh, and that we can call to give hope. Uh, we don't work them through the steps yet, but we call to reach out and say, you know, I, w- I was just there and come along with me. It's very hopeful. But But what I remember is when I first started to work with others, it was very selfish time, and it's fine at that point. You know, that they, they knew they must help other alcoholics if they were to remain sober. So why do I want to work with other alcoholics or other compulsive overeaters at the, at the beginning? Because I want my abstinence. I want to be done with this craziness. I not only want to put the food down, but I want the, the monkeys in my brain to stop having their conversation without my permission. And so, you know, I was, I was pretty crazy. So I was very, very motivated from a selfish standpoint. But as I go on in my recovery, what's, what they're talking about, that motive became secondary. It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. So now what, what recovered feels like for me is that I, I don't have to desperately seek out others to make sure that I stay abstinent. I, I keep on seeking out others because that's that's how I stay recovered. It feels so I'm not saying this well. This is what I mean to say. That I started out living in that selfishness, self centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles on page sixty two. That's where I was. And here it feels so good to not be in selfishness and self centeredness and that I give because it feels great to bring other people along to share the recovery that I have. So it's, it's an in- incredibly important nuance that I'm not helping others out of desperation anymore. I'm helping other people because it, it just exactly what it says. It, I want to share what I have. It's just an amazing experience to live in recovery and uh, that, that I can be present for others no matter what they're saying, what they're doing, how they're acting. Uh, you know, I, I can, I'll be teaching, I teach an exercise class, and I'll have someone who's really kind of pushing my buttons in the class, and I can pray right during that experience and realize that whatever's going on, it's about me and not about the other person. And I can say, hey, God, help me let this go. And those are the kinds of things that I'm trying to share, that I don't have to live in insanity anymore. And with that, thank you for letting me share. I pass. Thank you, Sylvia. Melanie? You're next. Thank you, Rebecca. This is Melanie, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Oregon. And when I read those very same lines that Rick and Sylvia were talking about, it almost takes my breath away until I can sort it all out. And um, I am an undisciplined person. And this, to me, not only speaks about step 12 and what has to be done in order to keep what I have, it addresses the idea that I just want to be the devil-may-care chap. And the way I kind of giggle at those words, because I don't want anything to 
rain on my ability to be spontaneous. And that translates to me, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And anything else is going to get in my way. And so when I read those words about I've got to give this thing away and a certain amount of, you know, clearly amount of time that I need to spend in recovery, a good amount of time I need to spend in my sponsees, and I spend a good deal of time in those areas. <gasps> I can't breathe again. And then I remember, then I remember and write this down so that I can enforce that into my mind and how it makes my life and my heart feel when I get to be on a telephone call with somebody and tell them what miraculous thing happened to a person like me. It transcends that idea that I have to give this away, that I've got this you know, need to stay so All of those things go away because the sheer joy that I have a story to tell, I've forgotten that I've just gotten this, this charge to be disciplined to send out this message to somebody else and it's required of me every day. I love it. I absolutely love it. I can't even begin to tell you. And I've forgotten, but I do need to take those moments to to take a look at who and what I am, which is I'm unmanaged basically without this. And so these are the, the pieces that continue to give me what I have and that this particular program is filled with opposites. I thought that what I was doing in terms of give me, give me, I want, I want, you look at me first was the way I was going to get my life satisfied and fulfilled. But the truth of the matter is it's by giving it away. It has given me the joy. And if I look at things individually, like they're pointing out here, that I must, I must practice this 12th step. Oh, my goodness, don't tell me what I must do. I remember the joy every time I pick up the phone. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Kathy. <clears throat> Thank you, Rebecca, for your service. This is Kathy, a recovered compulsive overeater from Boston. It's funny how we all focus on the same sentence in this paragraph. And I, too, wanted to comment, um, though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober, that motive became secondary. And I have experienced that. I've experienced the joy of um, helping another compulsive overeater, uh, so much so that in the last uh, year um, I've worked with several different uh, suffering compulsive overeaters and witnessed uh, a transformation in them that um, is just beautiful. And to be a part of that is so wonderful. I, at the same time, I think, to be very honest about this, I um, sometimes wonder uh, if I'm doing too much. If I don't know if this paragraph really allows for that, um, but there are times when I can see that um, I'm not getting enough sleep or... Um, I'm not uh, giving enough attention to my family. Um, There are things that happen which cause me to wonder, maybe maybe I'm doing too much in this area. Um, And perhaps it has to do with not trusting enough um, in my higher power, because I do feel like I'm following my higher power's will for me 
Um, so maybe it's my self-centeredness or my fear that causes me at moments to feel like I may be um, spreading myself too thin in the area of this wonderful service that so clearly supports my own recovery. Um, I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? Hi, this is Lisa from Colorado. Hi, Lisa. Go right ahead. Yeah, um, he now returned home leaving behind his first acquaintance, the lawyer and the devil-may-care chap. So he had to go back to his, his regular life, his life that he had before, but he had done something that was miraculous. I mean, it was historical what he had done. I mean, he was there only three months, and, and he had already planted the first seed of what I, I perceive as Alcoholics Anonymous. So these men had found something brand new in life, and I also have to be careful that I don't spread myself too thin because I can tend to be a little bit anorexic. And I, if I can just um, give this much, and I put these, um, this is where my self-seeking and my self-will comes in. If I just do this, and I'm very rigid, and I do this many hours of um, prayer and meditation, if I do this many phone calls, blah, 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 and it gets to be into the self-will, and I give myself too much, and it gets into self-deprivation, and I can be anorexic in many areas of my life, not just in food. So um, that's where the 10th step, the 11th step, and, um, you know, communing with God and saying, God, is this your will? Is this thy will for me? Because um, if I can just control this disease by giving, giving, giving to the point where I'm just empty, I'm in big trouble. So it's just, um, you know, part of my sobriety is to look at, okay, is this God's will for me? Am I getting too rigid around the edges? Or am I being soft and kind of creeping in with kitten's paws or cat's paws in my service work? Because that's how God works is through the still, small voice. So that's all I wanted to share on this. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. This is Rebecca, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and very grateful to have this opportunity to um, moderate the meeting this morning and share with all my fellows on this road to happiness and sobriety and recovery. And um, in these paragraphs, what I'm reflecting on is how I was a dieter for so long, and then once I found out that I needed to put my binge foods down, I um, dabbled in that for a while before I actually became willing to do business. And during all that time, my family saw me um, being unpredictable, um, and um, one minute I could eat these things and the next minute I couldn't. And um, they were all supposed to be supportive of me, but, you know, I, I was a crazy person, insane in a disease that they all had to put up with. Um, I didn't have any credibility. Uh, where was my integrity, I imagine, they must have been thinking. Um, I didn't want this, that, and the other thing in the house, or we had to, you know, only eat certain ways because I was on a diet or I didn't eat this, that, or the other thing. 
And then the next minute I was eating that stuff. So, you know, I'm surprised they had anything to do with me, frankly. And um, now that I've um, been abstinent and worked these steps because I came to realize that my life depended on it and um, am freed of that obsession to um, go back and forth with food and take my will back and um, all that, um, I have been transcended by the happiness that I find in giving of myself to others, and that does um, ensure another day of uh, abstinence for me, but it is no longer the goal. It's um, it's so much more than that. Who, who would have thunk it? <laughs> and with that, I'll pass, and um, we, we're... We've run out of time for today, and so um, I want to thank you, uh, all of you who have shared, and we will now close with reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. Will Sylvia please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Hello, this is Sylvia, recovery overeater in upstate New York. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. I pass.